This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, February 1st, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. At a time when the status of immigrants is in flux following executive orders from the White House, why be optimistic about the possibility of market-friendly immigration reform? Tim Kaine is an economist at the Hoover Institution. He's optimistic. We spoke yesterday. When I speak with uh, David Beer, one of our immigration policy people here at the Cato Institute, he is, relative to last year, more optimistic about immigration reform. And perhaps that is because last year the odds were zero mm-hmm. that it was going to happen. And this year, the odds are greater than zero. Yeah. So why are you optimistic? <laughs> you know, there's, this, uh, there's a great reason to be optimistic about immigration reform in 2017. And the reason is Donald Trump. Uh, even if he's not doing things that you or I or, or any of our listeners think are, are great, the fact is he's a man of action. And uh, we've all got to be honest, the politicians in Washington, D.C., for about two decades, have not wanted to be active on this. They wanted to be very political with it. It's been a hot potato. Uh, I had a debate with Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren recently, and she was saying, well, you know, it, it, the executive action of Obama. Uh, was great. And I said, you know, but why is it temporary? Why is the DACA and DAPA programs, their, their three-year temporary legal status? And that's because, frankly, the president, Obama, wanted uh, those issues to be political hot potatoes. I think you've got a president now in the White House who wants to solve things. Now, I'll push back where I think he's solving them in the wrong way. But he says there won't be action on other immigration areas until we build a wall, until we have security, and he's going to build a wall. And it'll be really fun, Caleb, to have that conversation in 2019 of was it effective or not? Because, frankly, that's where it's been, you know, Lucy in the football, like right, with Charlie Brown. Yep, the border's never secure. I think we're going to be able to say, hey, look, you built the wall, the border's secure. Now let's deal with the 11 million illegal immigrants. Now let's create a work visa program that responds to market forces. I'm extremely optimistic. See, my suspicion is that you build the wall and that just shifts the discussion from why didn't the wall work and what else do we need to do? I don't think it moves the discussion toward uh, re- substantial positive uh, reform that serves employers, that serves people who want to come here and work, and serves uh, the uh, job creation in the U.S. That's a fair point. I think uh, I'd like to, to frame the conversation and start engaging uh, the administration with, I think it is going to work. Right? I think it is going to restrict the flow. And the, the dirty secret of people that look at immigration reform is that the number of illegal immigrants has been steady at 11 million. Now, that may be because my theory, uh, the supply of migrants from Latin America has gone down. You, you see the decline in birth rates of women in uh, El Salvador or Honduras compared to 1950 to today, it's gone from about seven children per woman in each of these countries to about two or two and a half children per woman. Now, there's a lag effect of about 20 years when they become adults do they go north looking for work, and we've seen that flow go down. There is a refugee flow uh, coming out of the uh, triangle countries in Central America. But the 11 million number is pretty steady. So the, the real challenge is how do you regularize them? And I, on, again, another reason for optimism, comprehensive immigration reform is dead. We're going to deal with issues one at a time. And I think that 
that paints a uh, an opportunity for centrists to come together. Um, and these tend to be centrists who believe in market forces. So there are. Uh I think it's an unfortunate distinction that is drawn between uh, workers who are here to do jobs that Americans don't really want to do or wouldn't be proud to do necessarily, and jobs that Americans would like to have but aren't qualified to do. Hmm. Uh, so uh, Zoe Lofgren, as you mentioned, yeah. she would like to increase the uh, minimum salary associated with H-1B visa workers. It has been $60,000. She would like to raise that to $130,000. What do you see as the impact of something like that? I don't understand why you would want to do that other than the classic um, sort of union-friendly bait-and-switch of let's protect workers, but actually we're declining people the opportunity to work, right? This is the argument for the minimum wage. When the minimum wage was instituted to block people from coming into the labor force and being competitive, in fact, you any law that tells people they can't work it's illegal for them to work of their own free volition is probably a bad law. I think the way we should deal with the visa, the work visa program, is to eliminate or reduce the, the alphabet soup of different kinds of work visas and let different companies bid for those. And so let, let that determine um, what's needed. Because frankly, the uh, farmers in the United States, they need farm migrant workers. Um, the, the, the flaw right now is that it's a seasonal program. So loosen that seasonal restriction. It's just another way that we need to loosen, not raise regulations on migrant workers. So you, your argument then would be uh, don't set some arbitrary number for the dollars that you'll be paying these workers when they come here, but let companies bid for them and broaden the range of companies or groups or individuals that can bid for workers in different sectors. Absolutely right. I think if you trust consenting adults to make the right economic decisions for themselves, uh, th those are going to be better decisions than a paternalistic government. The, the, but the economic argument, I think, if, if uh, I should put words in some of these people's mouths, it would be, you know, these high paid engineers, typically people who work on software, the the, um, the number of jobs that they will be creating by coming here and doing that work will be so much higher than the, the number of jobs created by someone who uh, works at a dry cleaner or runs a convenience store or does uh, agricultural work for yep. some time. Yeah, there are huge complementarities, uh, even among human capital. So if you bring in a great programmer from Singapore, a kid who goes to Stanford University to study, first attitude should not be to kick him out, because the fact is, if he stays in a company in the United States, he's going to help create jobs for other Americans who are native-born here. The research shows that for every one high-skilled visa holder who's hired here, there's an average of 2.8 jobs created for native workers. That's a pretty big win-win. Same's true for low-skill workers. So, yeah, I, I don't buy the research or the argument, I should say, that uh, low-skill workers or high-skill workers are stealing jobs. They're helping create jobs. But that distinction nonetheless exists. There are there are uh, members of Congress who feel perfectly comfortable saying, oh, well, we need to focus on these high-skilled workers where we don't have 
uh, these skill sets already in existence among Americans in the United States. Yeah, and and you know what, I'm I'm a big fan, as I said, of taking those wins. If you can get a uh, a piece of legislation through Congress where you'd have 90% of the members supporting it saying, let's expand the amount of green cards that are given to uh, foreigners that have engineering degrees from U.S. universities. Let's get Congress working together on legislation to improve the law. And then after those coalitions are formed, and you know who are the pure restrictionists, you go on to the other skill levels. And um, so I I think that's, I would take that, even though I I think it's half a loaf, and I want the whole loaf, it's all good stuff. Uh, But take half the loaf where you've got the consensus right now. Uh, Donald Trump doesn't seem to be uh, interested in in that kind of high-skilled immigration uh, either. He, as you know, Donald Trump has said a lot of things about a lot of things. And uh, there was a fascinating discussion. This may have preceded his presidential uh, ambitions, but he was in an interview, and Steve Bannon was in the room, and, and Donald Trump was making the point that there are these good immigrants that add to the U.S. economy, and Bannon was like, well, I may disagree with you on that, and they chuckled about it. I think his instincts are actually better than some of the some of the staff around him. But I know some of the other people that are going in, into the administration, good free market people, and um, I think there'll be some some folks we can work with there. And eventually, I think the president's going to have his heart on the right side. If I were working for, let's say, Infosys or the Tata Corporation or, or something like that, I might also think, well, maybe I want a lot of these engineers to stay here in yeah. India yeah. and uh, build up our capacity to uh, create great products and export them. Yeah, I think there's a battle for talent. And uh, we've been winning that battle by default. Um, it will become, uh, in this century, more and more uh, a pressing issue uh, as we realize there's that. And I think, unfortunately, there's already been a misstep, this uh, freezing of visas, even among uh, legal permanent residents that came out of the executive orders at the end of January. Uh, that's going to backfire. Because if you are a talented, uh, young superstar programmer, whether you're from India or whether you're from Germany, um, this creates a little cloud of suspicion that your life could be disrupted if, depending on the whims of uh, an executive order in the future. So unfortunately, I think uh, that was a step back, but it was, it was corrected. And um, and hopefully it won't be repeated because I think you know nobody says that one data point's a trend, but if you get two or three data points that are pretty clearly anti-immigrant and that side's winning inside the White House, uh, it could could be harmful. Where does the United States take its refugees from? Wow, fun question. You'd think that they all came from Syria, but in fact, uh, very few of the it's, it's been about 70,000 a year historically. President Obama raised it to 90 and then 110,000. Very few of those came from Syria. Uh, we've had them from all over. But let me read you some numbers that I, I think were just so compelling as I looked into this. We had 1,682 Syrian refugees admitted in 2015. In 2014, it was 105. 2013, it was 30-something. 2012, 31. 2011, 25. 25, 25, 24. Very few refugees, even years of civil war in Syria, came from there. Um, They come from a number of places. And I think this may be a good time for President Trump to have 
change the conversation and where should our focus be? I've, I've long believed that we should focus on allied countries, and, and among those I would, I would say are Afghanistan and Iraq, where we've got allies fighting alongside us. Um, but maybe focus a little bit more on this hemisphere, where we have a refugee crisis in Central America, and yet very few refugees have been accepted from El Salvador, Honduras, Haiti, uh, Nicaragua, and those countries. And um, we've got a role to play. We've got a humanitarian role to play. Um, it's just up to the discretion of the president. Unfortunately, Caleb was president. has been a little clumsy in the way he's dealt with it, but I think it's a good conversation to have. What is the upside of that focus other than uh, reassuring our uh, friends to the extent that countries can have friends? Well, I, I think um, you know America has a role to play as a role model. Uh, we've been a role model in accepting refugees from around the world, but the overall numbers are important. So at the, at the peak, I mentioned we had 110,000 refugees coming globally. Uh, you know how many refugees there are just in Syria alone? It's the millions, more than 10 million displaced people in Syria alone. So in some sense, uh, dealing with refugees is a uh, uh, salve for a guilty conscience. You help a few people, but I think trying to advance through diplomacy, through our troop deployments, trying to advance um, economic freedom around the world is the best way to make sure that the refugee crises don't happen in the first place. Tim Kaine is an economist at the Hoover Institution. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes and Google Play and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.